Hey everybody, it's me, Libba Beecham, Director of Media and Communications here at the History Center, and I had the pleasure of interviewing today's guest historian, Sarah Snyder, who is currently researching the ways in which rail travel and rail stations of the Victorian era offer insight into class systems. Something that may seem very specific, but during this conversation, I learned how much we can learn from material culture, the objects, buildings, blueprints, literature, and more of a certain time period. But enough of me. Let's hear all about it from historian Sarah Snyder. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you just give us a a brief overview of your academic career and what led you to this really fascinating topic? Well, I started my degree at Columbus State University. I dropped out of high school and uh, I realized that I didn't like not being in school. And so I went to Columbus State and I just picked the one subject topic that I didn't hate which was history. And because CSU is in the South and because of a lot of the orientation of a lot of the professor's studies, there was a large focus on race, ethnicity, and society within the degree program. And my minor was geography, specifically cultural geography, but I did GIS as well. And so I just kind of developed a passion for people, places, and spaces over time, understanding people, because I think we have a tendency to disassociate people of the past with people now, whereas I think that it's all an exercise of understanding. And the more that we understand, the better we can fix things. And so from there, I turned my knowledge into a career in local government. I've done everything from GIS development and planning to city planner to grant coordinator for affordable housing. And after so many years of that, I just decided I really wanted to get back into more hands-on work. So I came over to York in the UK to pursue that, and I started the Buildings Archaeology Program. It's a relatively new study in general, but it's fascinating. It kind of, it's the intersection of history and buildings that's emerging in a way that I think is different than in the U.S., where it's not just preservation as much as it is understanding people through places. Yeah, something that we uh, connect to here at the History Center. I mean, our artifacts are not just things. They are things with stories that we interpret and analyze and can tell so much more than what they what they seem. And when I learned about your studies with the Victorian era rail. At first I was like, wow, that's that's extremely specific, but it does seem like it would speak to so much more, seem to touch everyone in that society since it is transportation. So lead us into how you discovered this topic and what your first impressions were. So how I discovered the topic was actually completely by accident. So when I first moved over here, I met a friend and he works for one of the national railway lines, the North York Moors railway line. And anyways, it's a a steam line. And it's one of the sites where they do a lot of filming and stuff like that. Like the uh, station that they use to film Hogsmeade and Harry Potter is, is on it. Here's an interesting thing. So rail people in England are a whole thing. It's a whole thing over here. It's very different than in the U.S. So one day he's like, well, let's go to the National Rail Museum. So we went and I got a private tour of the archives and I was just, I got this 
amazing Provatory the Archives, and I saw just how much documentary evidence was there not really being used because here, I think, because so many people are trained people, it's become this, it almost has a stigma in academia where it seems like an amateur hobby. And, and I was like, nobody's using any of this. And train stations themselves are built structures. They are structures of materiality. They're extremely important and they can tell us a lot that I don't think really the current literature has touched on. And so I went back to my professors and I was like, what do you guys think about this? And they were very enthusiastic, very encouraging, because the architectural history of train stations hasn't really been touched on since the 1960s. And the social history of train stations hasn't really been touched on, or social history in general, hasn't really been trendy since the 90s. And it's just, it's a field just waiting rampant with just things to look at that are so representative, especially because rail stations themselves there was this entirely new building type of being developed along the same time as new cultural sensibilities. And I think that that's crucial. Like you were saying about how it seems really specific, but it's a lot less specific than you would think. Yeah, since a lot of people are using the rail, I mean, it is this place where a lot of cultures converge. Well, so that's actually kind of the fascinating aspect, right? Is because currently the literature right now, the very limited amount of literature that's been produced in the past, only in the past five years, kind of discussing this topic has been out of the history field, right? And it's mostly literary history based. And so a lot of the documentary evidence is based on news reports, novels. So it there's this divergence kind of between what was the actual experience and what was this sensationalized experience because the Victorians were such a highly romantic people. So much of of what was being represented or construed as the actual experience is based off of really just perception of experience. Women, depending on which class you were in, right? Like women in general were encouraged to not travel alone. Just like in the Regency period and prior, it was an issue of women shouldn't travel unescorted. But as things started to change, women needed to travel by themselves trains were available, so on and so forth. But so they were considered like these very egalitarian spaces. The concept of space is conceptualized within this framework of it's the station, it's the rail car itself. Women were basically prey. They were equally as prey to lower class men trying to swindle them or seduce them as they were also almost romanticizing the idea of getting seduced. Also, there's this whole idea of, you know, the the love at first sight concept really developed specifically at this time because the train stations are transient areas. They're areas of temporary nature. And so, especially in Victorian society, which was so rigidly socially in class, enforced everything was so segregated naturally and it was just this whole public conceptualized fear in the papers and and in novels of well anything could happen 
you could be whoever you want in this small period of being whoever. And, and yeah, it just became romanticized and, and kind of sensationalized and all the ways that would sell papers and all the ways that would sell books. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm even thinking about, you know, m- movies today that are uh, based in the Victorian era, that the, the waving goodbye to loved ones or the excitement of change, knowing that you're going somewhere else, which of course would be even more ex- exhilarating to someone who doesn't travel as often as we as a population does now. Especially if you're somebody of like a repressed gender or class, it's just this concept of opportunity. So as you said, this is a, this is a space. It's, a, it's also a segregated time. It's a divided time among uh, class, gender, and race. What does that look like in the Victorian era? So strangely, it really, one, it really changed so drastically over the course of, you know, 50 years or so. Because the first hundred years that the rail existed, which is the entirety of the Victorian period. It was just a constant thing of trial and error, not only with the actual engineering of building them, but with what they were facilitating. Because at first they didn't think any lower classes would ever take trains because they didn't see them as sustainable for them. And then there was this other period where it was like, well, no, now we have to convince rich people to take trains. And it really also depended on the station and what that rail line was for. So the Victorian period itself was a period in in rail history of extreme non-standardization, right? There were different rail widths, different, like there were just hundreds of short little rail lines doing all sorts of things. So the development of the rail station itself just depended on region to region, city to city. But the first really good example that we see is as early as 1832 with the Liverpool and Manchester Railroad and it's the terminal station in Manchester. Still stands today as offices for their museum actually, but it had segregated waiting rooms, segregated entrances, all of this kind of stuff. But then if you go to other stations, for instance, the Seaside Holiday, which is basically the rail company would get with large companies that employed masses of people. And there'd be just a whole weekend where the rail stations were just flooded with working class people because the rails were moving them to and from the beach for their paid company holiday. And so those spaces aren't are not segregated in strange ways because by and large, a lot of the time they weren't interacting with it. It wasn't a commuter type of station. There was a certain class for certain days. So in the early days of rail, a lot of upper class opted to maintain carriage travel coach travel just it was it was private and at the time they didn't have private rail cars really unless you were like a crazy mogul but then again you have to think about the fact that you know aristocrats at the time didn't deal in trade it was considered faux pas the you know touch and trade you know for for a while the the old regime, if you will, you know, the the elder people of like the Regency period really stuck on to these older kind of concepts of protecting women, private 
coach travel, so on and so forth. And also they had negative experiences too with the rail station because a lot of the time the rail wanted to build through their properties and they didn't want that. Even if it was hundreds upon hundreds of acres that they owned, they just wanted uninterrupted English countryside. But then very quickly, this series of events happened where the younger people started taking rail because they were like, well, this is affordable and it, it's faster, especially as more aristocrats had to start getting in trade and needed to start traveling more often outside of their estates in London, in the north where all the industry was, faster travel was more important. And so that started happening. And then quickly after that, what started happening is second class disappeared. So there are some parliamentary regulations that kind of enforce that. But by and large, what you see is people that would have previously purchased first and second class tickets started opting to do to pay less for lower class travel. And that's actually when you see an increase in better conditions for third class travel. And what were the specific benefits for the lower class with, the, with rail? Well, so lower class One of the benefits of the fact that the last big wave of research, academic research into railroad travel, is that it was 1990s social history, which is very innately, in my experience, economic-based. It has a very large, like, socioeconomic focus rather than sociocultural. So there's been lots and lots of analysis on basically the cost, time, effectiveness, and who benefited the most. And third class, undeniably, benefited the most because really what it opened to them was culture like they they got to go on holidays they they people all of a sudden could go see their sister that you know married the guy an hour away or so the whole concept of holiday or the the english holiday really thrived during this period Can you talk to us about the different experiences of the different classes and like what amenities were available to the higher class? What would it have been like the conditions of of rail and how it may have varied? Before 1950, there was a period where third class rail travel was excessively unsafe. One, they were traveling in rail cars that were not roofed. A lot of the times they would sell too many tickets, but there weren't, there was just no regulation. There was no parliamentary regulation. So people were riding on, on the top of rail cars and paying for the privilege to do so. In 1946, I believe it was, there was a parliamentary, it was the first like very large, like where Parliament got involved and said, can't do this anymore. We need safety standards. We need to do more because there were just excessive amounts of death. Also, train cars were pulling more weight than they should have, making them unstable on the lines. There were tons of train crashes. It was just chaos for the first 30 years or so of mass rail travel. And because third class were the ones that benefited the most from it, they're the ones that used it the most. And so the conditions were just awful. And it really wasn't until, I'd say about, it's around 1840s or so that they really wanted to start targeting first class sales, really start pushing people of upper classes to have this leisurely, nice holiday, but it took convincing. By 1870, second class was largely non-existent and it just became first and third. And so At that point, you see kind of just the large divide. But when they got rid of second class, first class conditions became a lot better. 
everybody got roofs, everybody got a seat, so on and so forth. What were the things that you were most surprised in your research? What surprised me the most is, yes, one, the absolute kind of, I don't want to say lack of material because there's lots of material. It's just there's not a lot of critical material and extreme lack of critical narratives. So in the past five years or so, it's only then that we start getting this rise of, as I mentioned earlier, academic historians looking at women's narratives in the rail, but a lot of it is based on literature. And that's fine and everything. But the issue is that one of the benefits of buildings archaeology, right, is that it takes the concepts of field archaeology, you know, looking at objects, looking at things, and conceptualizing the materiality of objects, and just applying that to a structure that's standing. And so instead of looking at a building as just the building, you're critically looking at it as a material object. Mm -hmm. And what surprises me the most is how conflicting the narrative in my opinion, of what the building materiality says to what the limited body of current academic interpretation says. What materials have you been able to, to study? What are some examples of those materials and what, have, what conclusions have, you, have they led you to? Most of what I do is it's looking at floor plans. It's looking at building material. It's looking at uh, decorative you know, wainscoting, things like that. What did this room look like at that period versus another period? Why did it change? What does that say about why they made those changes? And and so it's a lot of looking at pictures and floor plans and how and why changes to a standing structure developed. The York Station is actually a pretty good example of this. So the railways and the hotels have like a weird, interesting relationship because they were kind of built by the railways but railway companies weren't really parliamentary allowed to run hotels and so they were just leased out but there's this underground reception room that runs between york station and the hotel next door and it's not an uncommon thing that this would happen and it's just this interesting relationship of okay well who were you serving you know, were you serving second class rooms? Were you just serving first class rooms? And especially because they were gender segregated. What I'm actually looking at currently is trying to look at how closely those resemble gentlemen's clubs at the time. There's also this fascinating concept of, you know, the women's waiting rooms still in the early processes of, of looking, but I think that there's enough evidence to, to claim at least like, I think the women's waiting rooms really restyled this feeling of domesticity and comfort. So they, they, they reflect and mirror what you're comfortable with, depending on which class you're from. They start caring less and less when you get to lower classes. But yeah, definitely with first class, you know, the gentleman's one looked like a place where you go smoke a cigar with your buddies while you're waiting on a train and the ladies room looked like a wait, like a, like a drawing room. Oh, that, that makes so much sense because you would you would want your passengers to to feel comfortable, especially with something that's relatively uh, a new experience for them. This whole concept of literature was like popular culture was the rail as a space was considered kind of scary and egalitarian, ro- romantic, and sensationalized. But I think that the stations themselves actually 
like overcompensated for that concept of adventure or lack of safety by really reinforcing those normal roles to make it seem more acceptable and make people feel more comfortable with it. Was there an emphasis on the beauty of the architecture or was it more functional in the beginning? At the beginning, it was very, very, very functional. In fact, they really didn't start putting a facade on it or including it in the urban landscape until like 1840s or 50s or so. So it, it was a good 30 years of pretty consistent use before they were like, well, let's let's turn this into a part of the urban landscape. And it's fascinating too, because, and I don't think this is really something that would happen in America, but it definitely happened here. Um, it set a precedent for the council or the, um, the corporation, the city, essentially, to pay for the facade. And they became this, the, the whole architectural typology really started developing and it adopted a lot of things from archways. They did a lot of like neoclassicist stuff turn it into just, yeah, this public area. By the 1870s to 80s, you get people being a little bit more bold. But at that point, there's also a standard of recognition. Uh, There's been 30 years of train stations being developed in large areas where basically people could look and recognize something as a train station. You know, whereas the first, the, the Manchester one I was telling you about, that was built in 1832. That was a highly advanced rail station. It was built to look like townhouses. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't tell it at all. Yeah. And so, yeah, by the time that they decided to incorporate it into the environment, into the urban landscape, they really adapted it off of almost an arcade look or a forum or a market, something like that, where there's lots of archways. It looked very grand, multiple access points, very much so part of the urban pedestrian scape of just people walking around, coming in and out. And much like with shipyards, the the clock tower. So there just became... By the time that I think that they would have started really going a little bit more overboard with maybe being more grand, there was this precedent for what people recognized as being a train station. But there again, St. Pancras is still nonetheless an amazing architectural wonder. It's beautiful. So there's a little bit of room for creativity, but also a lot of the major rail stations, the ones that could afford to do that kind of work, they didn't bid out their architects, meaning they had company architects. So it was the same, fairly consistent work being done from one station to the other. Now, is there any rail station that stands out to you as one that is worth visiting simply for the beauty of its architecture? King's Cross. Yeah, that's in London. Uh, For my research, I'm specifically, I specifically decided to not look as much at London stations, just because London is London. It's, it's it's its own thing. If you know what I mean, like circumstances that exist there don't exist anywhere else. So I decided to, to focus more on the North just because all of the other large railway stations were in the industrial North. But as far as just architectural beauty, I gotta say, King's Cross is really pretty and St. Pancras. 
Sarah, this has been fascinating. I, I so appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with us. Before we conclude, for our listeners that are interested in learning more, are there any resources that you can point us to or books that you've read? Absolutely. The best author on Victorian architecture or Victorian railway architecture, he's the only one that's really been publishing recently for British stuff. Anyways, Bill Fawcett. He has a book called Railway Architecture and the other Women and Rail Travel from 1850 by, it's a series of essays, I believe. Women in the Railway from 1850 to 1915. It's by Edinburgh University Press. Absolutely amazing. There's some great articles in there and a lot of it, I think you'll just get really blown away with it. It's just some amazing information about literature, literary interpretations, potential like women's experiences, because we have so little documentary evidence of actual diary documentation of what women actually experienced or lower classes. And so, so much of it is interpretive. And I think that they've just done such a fantastic job in that book. Oh, that sounds great. Well, I'm sure a lot of us will dive into those resources. And thank you again so much. We hope to learn more as your research advances. And, uh, and thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.